This morning, as I mentioned, we are starting a new series in Titus, and that will be in Titus 1, verses 1 through 4. That's found on page 998 in your English Bibles and page 1120 in your Spanish Bibles. Over the course of my sabbatical, as I visited other churches here in Pittsburgh and in Washington, D.C., and then served the Trotternish Congregation in Scotland, there are some things that were made apparent about the strengths and weaknesses of the church in general, and then our church in particular. And over time, I look forward to sharing those things and kind of working through some of those things together. And some of them will come up directly in our study of Titus together over the next few weeks. As I said, I'm, this series is titled Together and Toward. But before we get to our passage this morning, you may not be aware of this, but this weekend was the official start of something that shapes the lives of millions in our country. Any guesses? American football. High school football, and of course, college football, particularly if you're in the South, have a whole culture around them. And they direct the lives of those who partake. But it's not just professional, and it's not just college and high school, it's also professional football. It's also soccer or the real football. It's, uh, it's things like NASCAR. Who sh- people who like watching cars go around and turn, a left turn for hours and hours. But it's not just sports. It's about almost anything else in our lives. Anything else in this world can shape our lives. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, Jamie Smith makes the claim that we as humans are embodied, habituated creatures whose loves are aimed at ultimate ends. And those loves or desires are shaped by the various liturgies in which we participate on a regular basis. We typically use the word liturgy in the church. That's, if you look at our bulletin, it's a liturgy. It follows a particular pattern of how we work through the service. And it's done that way in a particular way to help shape us and to form us so that we're continually singing different types of songs that reflect different responses to God, that we are praying different prayers, that we are confessing our sin, that we are professing our faith, that we are liturgizing ourselves and each other. We are using the liturgy to shape us into what it means to be worshipers and followers of Christ. But there are various liturgies out there, not just Christian liturgies, not just religious liturgies. In fact, some of the most influential liturgies in which you participate are found outside of the church and away from the gathered community of faith. These liturgies shape our loves and desires by instilling in us particular visions of the good life. These liturgies shape us powerfully, and they often shape us without us even consciously knowing it. We participate in these liturgies without even consciously knowing how it's shaping us and forming us. Some of these liturgies are just our cultural. Some of our cultural liturgies, whether an American culture or a culture from 
a Hispanic country or a culture, European culture or whatever, those cultures have different liturgies of life that shape us in ways that we don't even realize. They shape us unconsciously. Paul, who writes to Titus, understands that our culture powerfully shapes us. He understands that we seek that good life, that we have visions of what the good life looks like, that we can put our faith in those visions, sometimes, like I said, without even consciously knowing it. And so he writes to Titus, to the church in Crete, and don't miss this, he writes to us as well for the sake of our faith. So let's read Titus 1, 1 through 4, again found on page 998 in the English Bibles and 1120 in the Spanish Bibles. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that as the Apostle Paul wrote these words to Titus, and by extension, the church in Crete, Lord, that they were by your spirit being even written that they might instruct us, encourage us, help us 2,000 years later. Lord, we pray that you'd be with us by your spirit We pray that your word would not only transform our lives, but our lives would be conformed to your very word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So Paul here is writing to his faithful partner in the gospel, as Paul calls him, his true child in the common faith, Titus. We don't know a whole lot about Titus. Titus does show up in some of Paul's other letters, particularly in First and Second Corinthians. And so we know that Paul, or that Titus was with Paul, served with Paul, traveled with Paul, but we don't know to what extent. But Titus was a trusted friend and minister of the gospel. And Titus finds himself in Crete. At some point, Paul and Titus went to Crete. We aren't exactly sure when. Crete does not show up in the Missionary journeys and acts doesn't mean that it wasn't there in there, but they don't show, it doesn't show up there. We're not sure exactly when in Paul's ministry he went to Crete, but there's evidence from this letter and from outside evidence that Paul was in fact in Crete with Titus. And so Paul leaves Titus in Crete to help lead the church there in Crete. We're not sure if Paul himself was the first one to bring Good, the gospel to Crete, uh, we don't think so. Uh, in Acts chapter 2, when uh, the day of Pentecost happens, uh, it's mentioned that there were, belie- there were people from Crete in Jerusalem that day who heard the good news and responded. And so it's generally understood that 
those who were there in Jerusalem who received the good news of the gospel that day at Pentecost went back to Crete, shared the good news of the gospel, and helped establish the church there, and that Paul perhaps went to encourage them to help them in growth and grace and knowledge of the truth. Crete was not a cushy place. It wasn't like Paul was leaving Titus in this Mediterranean island where he was just going to sit around the pool and drink Mai Tais and have a great time. Crete was a rough place, as we'll find out later in the, book, in the letter. It wasn't the dream job. It wasn't the place where Titus was like, ooh, me, me, let me go to Crete. No. Crete was not a place of the dream job. And yet, this is where Titus finds himself. And Paul writes this letter privately to Titus, but with general instruction and encouragement to the entire church. We see that Paul is writing for the sake of your faith. When we think about the sake of, there are many things, often good things, as we kind of talked about the liturgies of our life, that our lives can be lived for the sake of. Our lives can be lived for the sake of a lot of different things, sometimes good things, sometimes not so good things, sometimes even bad and ugly things. We can live our lives for the sake of family, for friends, for children, for work, for hobbies, for education, for you name it. It goes on and on and on. And that's just the list of the good things. This morning, Paul reminds Titus and us that our lives are lived, or that his ministry is for the sake of your faith. That Paul's ministry is for the sake of your faith and my faith. He writes what he preaches, what he does is for the sake of your faith. The Apostle Paul understood that his entire life, after his conversion, It's for the sake of your faith. And what we see in our passage today is that for the sake of your faith, embrace grace. For the sake of your faith, embrace grace. We see that in three ways, in the hope of grace, the truth of grace, and the service of grace. For the sake of your faith, embrace grace. First, the hope of grace, verses 1 through 2. I won't spend a lot of time on this, but for those of you who aren't aware, who've never maybe really been a reader of the Bible or haven't grown up in the church or maybe new to the faith or exploring, this guy Paul, who writes this letter, who is known around the world as St. Paul, as the Apostle Paul, was far from that. This guy, Paul, was a terrorist. He was a murderer. He was a torturer. He was one who tracked down and did all kinds of ungodly things to people who professed faith in Jesus Christ. He was not a nice guy by any stretch of the imagination. He believed that what he was doing was for a good cause. And yet, the cause that he thought he was serving, the cause of God, he was in fact going directly against God's will. He was, as he says, chief 
among sinners. His life was so deplorable in how he lived and acted. He was the chief among them, even in what he lays out in other places in his righteousness, his good deeds. They amount to nothing, he says. He is one who deeply knew the need of grace. He's one who deeply understood the hope of grace in our lives. And that hope of grace is spoken of here by Paul as the hope of eternal life. In verse 2, the offer of Christ is nothing less than a new kind of life, Paul says. This word eternal that is attached to life can only be correctly applied to one person in the whole universe, and that person is God. The offer of Jesus is nothing less than the offer of a share in the life of God. Have you ever thought of it that way? That eternal life, that eternal, eternality, the internal nature of God, is the, he's the only one who can correctly have that word applied to him, and yet he offers to share his life, to have a share in his life with us. This eternal life is the offer of God's power for us and our powerlessness. This offer of eternal life is to share in God's peace in our dismay. This offer of eternal life is the sharing of God's truth in our guessing. It's God's goodness for our moral failures. It's God's joy for our sorrow. You see, the eternal life that is offered by God in the gospel of Jesus Christ is not merely quantity of life. We often think of it as eternal life means someday this will happen. And it does mean that, but that is not the only way that eternal life is to be understood It is not merely the quantity of life, but is more importantly the quality of life. And that quality of life is found in the quality and personhood of who God is, the eternal one who gives eternal life. And that for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, that eternal life is ours, that we share in the life of God. It is tasting and experiencing in this life, yet not fully, what God promises in the renewed heavens and the renewed earth. This eternal life is to understand now a bit, a taste, an appetizer, so to speak, of the full banquet of God's kingdom and life that is offered to us in the gospel. The gospel doesn't offer, first and foremost, an intellectual creed. The Apostles' Creed is a wonderful thing for us to commit to memory and to say on a weekly basis to remind us of the truths that we believe. But the gospel isn't first and foremost that. It's not first and foremost a moral code. It's not first and foremost, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that. First and foremost, the gospel is that we are offered life, the very life of God. 
Maybe you're sitting there saying, well, my sin is too large. Or it's persisted too long for God to forgive. The response of the gospel is, Jesus' grace is great. Maybe you kind of despair in the face of personal weakness. You might say, I'm not measuring up to God's requirements. I don't have my life together yet. I can't come to God this way. The response of the gospel is, God doesn't save you on the basis of your ability, but he gives you his grace by mercy alone. Maybe you're one of those realists who says, I can resist temptation for a while, but I know that no matter how hard I try, I can't get through it. I can't maintain my resolve. The assurance of the gospel is, the assurance of Jesus is, my grace is forever. Even when you stumble and fall, even when you go back to the life that you hoped to leave. Jesus says, my grace is forever. Maybe for those who might fear, well, I've never fit in anywhere else. How am I going to fit in in the church? Christ says to you, the grace of God your Father unites you to this family, to my family. And that's the hope of grace. You see, Paul understood all of those things in his life. It was the hope of grace alone that allows him to live the life that he, had, that he lived to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We see here the hope of grace. We also see the truth of grace, verses 1 through 3. The hope that we have, Paul says, is grounded in the promises of God that were made by God, as he said, before the ages began. The hope we have is grounded in the promises of God who made them before the ages began. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with guidance and hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The faith of God's elect, Paul's just saying, for those who God has called to himself, the ones who which have received the gospel, the one who in God's providence would receive and know the truth and knowledge of God, he has promised that before the ages began. But the hope that we have is not just grounded in what God has done in the past, Paul says, but is in the present fulfillment of those promises given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you might say, well, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Yes, but we live in the present reality of Jesus' kingly reign. We live in the present reality of what Jesus promised was the Holy Spirit dwelling with his people. 
We live in the present reality of what God promised from ages past. From what the, before the ages began, we live in that reality that God has shown himself, himself to be truthful in the reality that we live in now, beginning with the inauguration of the kingdom when Jesus came to earth. And this truth that has been given to us, this truth that God has, it, it has fulfilled in Jesus Christ, trains us in godliness. Paul says, which accords, this knowledge, their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in verse 1. See, godliness doesn't qualify us for faith. But Christian faith, properly understood, is lived. You see, a Christian faith is not just mere intellectual assent. It's not just merely knowing the right things. It's not merely knowing the right doctrine. It's not merely knowing all that there is to know, if anyone could ever know that, about the Bible or about the scriptures. Christian faith, rightly understood, is lived out. The grace that true faith receives stimulates a desire for godliness in believers. And as Paul will point out, this is no less true for the believers than for the leaders of the church. The grace of Scripture never slights sin, never excuses laxity, never abandons a life of being removed from those things which may call us cause us to sin but it always seeks for a greater glory of the Savior the grace that we, that we see in the scripture that we receive from Christ always calls us to greater glory of the Savior the message of grace Paul shows here, says here and then he, op he expands it later in, the, in our text throughout the, throughout the letter the message of grace apart from godliness or godly endeavor apart from an understanding of grace destroys the hope that the gospel offers. Let me say that again. The message of grace apart from godliness or godly endeavor trying to be godly apart from understanding of grace destroys the hope that the gospel offers. Both go hand in hand. We must understand grace. We must have a, understand that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ, that God in his great mercy poured out his love upon us. That is grace. We must understand that in order to live in godliness. We can fall into the trap of as we'll see in our text, where we can receive grace and then not live in light of how God has called us to live. You know, it's kind of like, you know, me on a Saturday afternoon sitting on the couch going back and watching football. 
or Sunday afternoon. And my family, this is hypothetical, by the way, and my family would keep coming and giving me food and, you know, bringing me drinks and, you know, just lavishing all of this love upon me, coming and snuggling with me on the couch and doing all these things that are feeding my needs. And then for me to say, when they are in need of something, I'm good. I've got all that I need. It's a very poor illustration of what it's like for the Christian to receive the grace that we have received in Christ and then not seek to live in light of that grace. To serve God and to serve others to live in light of the mercy and grace we have received. And that takes us to the third point, the service of grace. We've received the hope of grace. We see that there's the truth of grace, that there is truth in this grace that we must understand not just as as an emotional response to grace, but we also must have understanding. We must have knowledge of Scripture of Christ, of our God, which the two together lead us to a service of grace. While Paul has a unique calling as an apostle, we, like him, are also servants of Jesus. Just as someone's life who has been saved by someone, you've probably seen in a movie or read in a book where someone saves someone else's life. And that person is so grateful that they are indebted to that person for saving their lives for the rest of their life. They almost become their indentured servant. Not because they are forced to, but out of a great deep desire and love for what the person has done and for the person themselves. We too have been saved We've received not just a salvation in this life, but for an eternity. We are grateful servants of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our service is not merely to tell others of the author, uh, offer of salvation through faith, but to also equip them in their knowledge of the truth. The gospel must be thought out in order to be lived out. You see, the gospel must be thought out in order to be lived out. You see, the gospel, we receive the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, but there is a great depth to the gospel, a great truth to the gospel, a great knowledge that comes from understanding the whole of the gospel, which is all of Scripture. The gospel story goes from Genesis to Revelation, And the more that we understand it, the more that we study it, the more that we know it, the more we have thought out the gospel, the more we have understood what God has conveyed conveyed to us through his word, the more we have thought out the gospel, the more we're able to live out the gospel. The gospel must be thought out in order to be lived out. The result of faith and wisdom, or faith and knowledge, the Bible says, is wisdom. 
And wisdom is the biblical understanding of how to live. So the result of faith and knowledge is wisdom, and the biblical understanding of wisdom is how to live, how to live rightly in this world. And we'll see this more in depth as we go through this letter, but what Paul is instructing the Cretans and us is that faith and knowledge are given to us in the gospel, and that wisdom, and that, this wisdom that we have from the gospel gives us the capacity to love in Christian community and the ability to live for good of society. The faith and knowledge that we receive in the gospel gives us wisdom, which is the biblical understanding of how to live, and that wisdom gives us the capacity to love in Christian community and the ability to live for the good of society. You see, many in our culture say, you know what? Having faith is fine. Just keep it to yourself. But Paul reminds us that God does not intend for us to live our faith alone in isolation from others. There are wonderful personal benefits to a relationship with Christ Jesus, but his interests are not restricted to just you. It's a shocker, I know. His interests are not just for me, though there are times where I really want them to be just for me. But his interests are not just for us, though his interests are very much for us. He loves us with a never ending, always and forever love, us as individuals. But his intention is not just for us, it is for us to be in relationship with others, to be together, and to move toward the world that he is redeeming. His interests are not restricted to any one person. Our lives touch others and as necessary, as a necessary consequence, either communicate good or ill. We know that just from our own experience, that our lives touch others in a necessary consequence and either communicate good or ill more or less of Christ. And a mark of maturity, Paul tells us in believers, is their sense of responsibility for others in the church and in the community. Paul reminds us, for the sake of your faith, embrace grace. All of what we are in Christ should express his love to others as godly living actually becomes the vehicle by which we take responsibility for the well-being of others in the church and for the witness to those outside the church. All that we are in Christ expresses this love to our brothers and sisters in Christ, to our neighbors, to our community, to our region, and even to the world. For the sake of your faith, embrace grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit 
to embrace the grace that is offered to us in and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, as we embrace that grace, may we know the hope of grace. Lord, may we know the truth of grace. And Lord, may we live in service of that grace to one another and to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.